Good morning. Did you like the choir? I did too, very much. Did you like the songs the choir sang? Do you want to hear them again? Yes, let's bring them back. Um, Good morning. My name is R. Dallas Green. Welcome to Grace. Um, For several weeks now, we've been studying the book of James. We've been going verse by verse, sort of old school. But there's a verse we haven't spoken of yet, and it's a very important verse. It's the first verse of James chapter 1. The verse begins, James, a servant of God. He viewed himself as a man under authority, a man who was open and willing to take on the assignment that God would give him, a man who saw others as much more important than himself, James the servant. When it's all been said or done, when our lives here on this earth are over, I think I'd love to hear someone say of me, and I'm sure of you as well, that this person was a servant of God, somebody under God's authority, somebody who took on the assignments that God gave them, someone who viewed others more important than themselves. Who was this man, James? What's the background of his story? Why does his story matter, right? James was the half-brother of Jesus. We aren't told when Mary and Joseph got married, but we know that they did not consummate their marriage until after Jesus was born. But when they did, James was conceived and James was born. Now, I know someone whose wife is expecting, and she carries in her purse a sealed envelope of the sex of their unborn child. And she has permission to open that envelope at any point she wishes to, but her husband prefers not to know. Kind of old school, right? Kind of like how it used to be. We didn't really know what was happening until the birth of our little ones. Well, when Mary gave birth to um, her firstborn of Joseph, his name was James. James grew up in the family with Jesus. Can you imagine having Jesus as your brother? I mean, they played in the same fields, right? They ate food from the same table. They knew the same neighbors, right? And James would have known that Jesus was different. I mean, Jesus didn't boast and brag. Jesus didn't put people down. Jesus didn't judge people. I mean, Jesus also didn't, you know, say to the clay pigeons, you know, fly, and they flew off. Not like a scene from Hook where he imagined the food and the food appeared on the table. Someone actually had to cook the food, right? But Jesus was the best brother a person could possibly be. He respected his earthly parents. He did excellent work in his shop. He supported his family when his father passed away. He knew the pressure, like you know the pressure, of making a living. James lived in proximity to Jesus but he almost missed it. He did not believe in Jesus. James was a skeptic. Now, I happen to love skeptics, dialoguing with skeptics about the faith. Skeptics question the validity of a claim. They call for evidence to prove that what you claim to be true holds up under their scrutiny. 
So we really do want our college students, our graduate students, to develop critical thinking, not only to know what to think, but also how to think. And the Christian faith can handle really hard questions. You know, if we don't doubt at some time, we really aren't human. Doubts raise questions, and these questions take us into a search, and when we find the answer to our search, they become the convictions we live our life by. So, I have a question. Are you a skeptic? It wouldn't surprise me if in this room that many of us here are skeptics. James and his brothers did not believe. I guess we're so used to being lied to that we question everything, right? We question the politicians, whether they're telling us the truth. In my opinion, the election, we've moved from class to crass, from the profound to the profane. We question the media. What are they trying to sell me? Are they programming my mind? So skepticism tends to run high in the American culture. If I said the Cubs will win the pennant, you might be skeptical. You want to know, like, who's playing for the Cubs, right? Who's on their roster? You know, who's pitching for the Cubs? Who's their manager? I mean, they haven't won the World Series since 1908. But hope springs eternal in the heart of the Cubs fans. Pastor Eric's convinced that this year will be different. If I said to you, the Redskins will win the Super Bowl, some of you are even more skeptical, right? Like, it's been since 1992 since the Redskins have won the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. But if I said to you, Jesus has risen again, how many of you are skeptical of that truth? Skepticism. See, a skeptic has a hard time believing a hard time believing. We're all on a spiritual journey. You may have been raised with Christian parents. You know, the Bible was read to you when you were a little child. They brought you to Sunday school, vacation Bible school. You had a religious background, but now you've got your questions about the faith. Or you may be more like me, not raised with a religious background. Um, rarely, if ever, went to church and kind of piecemealed it together over time, your faith. But whether you're coming from religious background or not, you're on a spiritual journey. And what happened to many of us in the spiritual journey was we encountered religion. I know of one person who stopped coming to church saying, I'll never be as religious as they are. I can't keep all their rules. They keep telling me these rules. These rules are killing me. I mean, I, they say you can't drink or chew or, wait a second, you can't drink, smoke, or chew or go with girls who do. And I drink, chew, and smoke and all that, you know. So what happens to a person when they encounter all these rules is religion, it takes us down one of two paths. The first path is self-righteousness that I feel like I keep the rules of the religion, therefore I feel proud of myself and self-righteous so I can look down 
on people that aren't keeping the rules. But the second path is that of self-condemnation. A person has been under rules for a while with a sensitive conscience and feel condemned. I mean, think about this one just for a moment, you moms. Being a good mother, right? She's a good mother. Think about when somebody says, she's not a good mother. How condemning is that of her, that she's not measuring up to the expectations, the standards, or he's a good man, or he's not a good man. What I'm trying to say is that these rules create sort of an environment within which someone either gets proud of themselves, they're keeping the rules, or condemns themselves, they're not. Well, the story I'm about to tell you is the story of James, of how he moved from being a skeptic to being a believer. If you want to follow along in notes, they're provided for you, and you'll see there the progression in his life from skepticism to belief to a leader to then a servant. So let's get started in Mark chapter 3 and verse 31 with the story of his skepticism. It says that now Jesus' mother and his brothers arrived standing outside of a house, and somebody, um, they sent someone to call for Jesus. A crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. So Jesus is now about 30 years old, and the disciples are hanging on every one of his words. There's a crowd gathered to hear what he has to say. Jesus is basically obliterating disease in Palestine. He's casting out demons. And so people are coming to Jesus and filling this house. Now, it's pretty obvious that Jesus is God. Nicodemus said that no one could do the miracles you're doing unless God were with him. But his family was very concerned about Jesus. They had come to take custody of Jesus. You know, what did the family think? The family thinks that Jesus has lost it, that Jesus has flipped out, that Jesus is a lunatic. You know, Jesus is not taking his meds. Jesus has gone bipolar. You know. <laughs> C.S. Lewis in his um, Mirror Christianity, he said, one of three things is true that either Jesus is a lunatic on the level of somebody who says they are a poached egg, or Jesus is a liar deceiving himself and others, or Jesus is Lord. You see, if the resurrection is true, then everything about Christianity is also true. But if the resurrection isn't true, it's all a hoax. It's not worth believing. We're still in our sins. Our preaching is useless. You see, Lewis was very concerned about people in his day saying that Jesus is a good man. Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus is a man with wisdom and compassion. But Jesus did not assert he was only a good man or a good teacher or full of wisdom and compassion. Jesus' assertion is that he is God. So the family comes over from um, their town of Nazareth to Capernaum and says words like, Jesus, you've been in the sun too long. Jesus, we need to take you back where you belong. 
They're very concerned about his mental health. Now, all joking aside, I was talking with a principal recently of an elementary school, and she was sharing with me about the condition of many of her students, about how many are taking medicines, about how many have been diagnosed with depression and being bipolar. I just want to say that we need to stay attuned to our children. We need to pay attention to their well-being. We need to give them safe places for them to talk. And we need to give them the help that they need. I would call the American culture right now not very family-friendly. The family is the cornerstone of America, and the family is worth fighting for. The family is worth preserving. And the greatest thing you parents can do is to live out your faith in front of your children with fidelity in the covenant of marriage, imparting wisdom to the next generation, helping them think about situations before they face them, communicating values to your kids, helping them to process life, listening, providing a safe place for them to be honest. So Jesus is inside this house, and his family is outside. Now, most likely this is Peter's house. Remember the house that they dug through the roof? That was likely Peter's house. And you remember that Peter had a mother-in-law. Now, for those of you with Roman Catholic backgrounds, Peter had a mother-in-law, which indicates that Peter had a wife, which means that Peter had children, which means that Peter, well, Peter's like, us, right? Peter now is in this house, and the house is crowded with people, and the brothers have shown up with the mother to take Jesus back. His brothers did not believe. They realized that Jesus had supernatural power, but they did not believe. So they figure the best thing to do is to take Jesus home. You know, at worst, what's going to happen is they're going to kill Jesus. At best, he's going to ruin our family's reputation. So the brothers and Mary are there. Now, Jesus knew his mother, but he said the words, who are my mother and who are my brothers? Jesus knew that his mother had carried him those nine months in her womb. Jesus knew that his mother had wrapped him in swaddling clothes and raised him up in her home. He knew his mother very, very well. He also knew his brothers very well. One of his brother's names is James. The other's name is Jude. Do you realize that two of Mary's children became writers of the New Testament, James and Jude? What would it be like to have Jesus be your brother? To see that your brother is God? Now, I didn't ask the question, what would it be like if your mother believed your brother was God? Or I didn't ask, what would it be like if your brother believed he was God? But what would it be like to be living in the house where you're living with Jesus, who is God? I want to say that Jesus asks a question here, and he asks the question, who is my mother, and who are my brothers, and who is my sisters? And he looked around the room, and he said, whoever does the will of God is my sister and my brother and my mother. Jesus himself was doing 
the will of God. He was about His Father's business. He taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the will of God. What Jesus was saying to James is, I am following completely after God's will, and I'm inviting you also to follow Him. There's a relationship that's even greater than your flesh and blood relationship. To believe in the Son and confess Him as Lord and obey Him and His Word. Well, then we see that James went from being a skeptic to being a believer, and that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you read through the chapter and you come to the seventh verse, it says, and he appeared, Jesus appeared to James. That James went from being a skeptic to being a believer by an encounter with Jesus Christ. See, Jesus went all around proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Jesus came to bring us good news Jesus came carrying the gospel. Now, we've heard the word gospel, and we think of the word gospel with gospel music or gospel choir, or somebody will say, they're going to tell me the gospel truth. But what is the gospel? What Paul wants to do is lay out for us here the gospel. So, he begins in 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. I want to remind you of the gospel. Now is a term of urgency. Brothers is a term of endearment and affection. My dear friends, I want to remind you of the gospel. I want to bring to your remembrance the gospel. I want to bring back on the radar the gospel. I want you to recall the gospel. Now, I can just hear them complain. Why, Paul, would you just bring up the gospel? Why would you cover ground that you've already covered? Why would you say the same thing over and over again about the gospel? You know, the gospels are the first four books of the New Testament. You would say that everything before points to the gospels. And everything after points back to the Gospels. And you could say the Gospel is the ABCs of Christianity, right? Most people know the facts of the Gospel. You know the facts of the Gospel, right? That Jesus was born of a virgin. That Jesus died a sinless, died, he lived a sinless life. He died in place of sinners on a cross that He rose again on the third day. So, if you're looking for the content of the gospel, it's right there in this chapter in verses 3 and 4, if you see it, that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus was buried, that Jesus rose again on the third day. So, let's go back to the basics. When I came to your town, I preached the gospel. I declared to you the gospel. I proclaimed to you the gospel. I was not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel has the power of God unto salvation. You say, what is the gospel, Pastor R? Thank you for the question. 
The gospel has to do with the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for sinners. An innocent man went to the cross. His name was Jesus. When the work of the cross was complete, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And two men came and took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. But on Easter morning, Jesus Christ rose up from the dead. He is alive. And Paul is saying, I preach to you the gospel. The gospel is the very heart of God. And you receive the gospel. Now what happens when somebody receives the gospel? It's right here. It says, the gospel I preached unto you, which you received. You see, we don't make up the gospel. The gospel is not the figment of someone's imagination. The gospel has been given to us and received, transmitted to us. The gospel that you received, I preach to you, on which you have taken your stand. Now, what happens when somebody receives the gospel? Let's say today you received the gospel of Jesus Christ. To as many as received him, the scripture says, to them gave he the right to be called the sons of God. What happens when a person receives the gospel is they get forgiven of their sins, they get adopted into God's family, and they get the Holy Spirit to live inside of them. He's saying that you are living proof of the gospel. You are living a life now that has been changed by the gospel. I am evidence of a life that has been changed by the gospel. I did not grow up in a religious family. I did not grow up with hope. I grew up with uncertainties and doubts, and my doubts turned into a search of me searching for God, of God searching for me, of God progressively revealing himself to me. And I came to the place where I believed and I was saved. He says, by this gospel, you are saved. And by this gospel, you have taken your stand. You see, the gospel gives stability into our life. It enables us to stand. Ephesians says it like this, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the devil's schemes. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but God has come to give us life and life more abundant. God has come to restore what the locusts have stolen. God has come to take us into a land of milk and honey. God has come to give us peace and wholeness. So the real good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come. A friend of mine, a friend of mine, early, early in his life, understood the facts of the gospel. He came to a church like this, and somebody was talking about the gospel, and he gave his life to Christ. He surrendered himself to Christ. But then what happened in his life was he went to a Christian school, 
and they began to lay on to him a bunch of rules. And then he realized that there's all these expectations people have upon me. He got up at four o'clock in the morning to pray, to read his scriptures. He learned that Christians have a heart for the poor, and he adopted a child from Compassion International. He went on various mission trips. He even became a pastor. But he said that the Christian life for him had become much more drudgery and duty than delight. But recently, he's made a rediscovery. And guess what he has rediscovered? The gospel. The truth has moved from his head to his heart. There was a gap between his intellect and emotions. The Puritan Jonathan Edwards said that awakening to the gospel is like a man who's known that honey is sweet, but for the first time the sweetness burst forth in his mouth. <laughs> My friend, he, he grew up in an environment where Christians didn't dance. And I get asked all the time, can Christians dance? And I say, well, some can and some can't. <laughs> and he got raised in an environment where there was these bunch of rules, and he tried keeping these rules and disciplining his life, but his life had sort of gone into drudgery, not delight. He always felt guilt. In the deepest part of his heart, he felt that God wasn't pleased with him, like he never did enough, like he could always do better, like God seemed to him like a merciless taskmaster, standing over him saying, not enough, do more. He didn't feel close to God. He felt distance from God. In fact, his own words was, I hated God. I wonder how close you feel to Him this morning. You see, the gospel reveals the beauty of God's love. Our love to God is a response to the love that God has shown to us. The grace that we extend is an extension of the grace that we have received. You see, I encountered Debbie, my wife, nearly 40 years ago. And I saw her, and I was drawn to her, and I saw her loveliness. But as I've gotten to know her even more, I see more of her loveliness and her beauty. The more you get to know the person of Jesus, the more beautiful He becomes to you. The more you delight in Him, the more your heart is moved by Him. You see, your passion begins to grow again for God, and you get freed from captivity to sin. You see, on which you have taken your stand. The gospel not only begins our relationship with God, the gospel is a pronouncement over your life. Now, man will make pronouncement over you. Some of you have heard a hard pronouncement in the recent days. Some of you have heard these words, cancer. Some of you here are in a vigorous, vicious battle with cancer. Some here are cancer-free. But here's what I want you to hear. The implication of the gospel is that God is with you, and God is for you, and God who delivered up His Son for you loves you, and no weapon fashioned against you will stand, and God is stronger than your biggest enemy. And when you can't fight, 
God will fight for you. And when you can't stand, God will stand with you. And when you can't carry on, God will carry you. Because when you believe the gospel, you have a very bright future. Cancer, the disease, cannot rob you of the hope because God can still your racing heart. And God can quiet your anxious heart. And God can give you courage to face what you need to face. And God can give you grace to persevere. And my God can heal. You see, God has made a pronouncement over you that you are loved and you are chosen. And man makes a pronouncement over you. And some of you heard in recent days these words, divorce. You never thought that word would be associated with your marriage. But your partner decided they didn't want to be married, perhaps found someone else, and now you're feeling hurt and betrayed. What can the gospel possibly give you? The gospel is the pronouncement over you that you are blessed and you are chosen and you are loved and you are accepted. There is no judgment in the gospel. There is no condemnation in the gospel. God has chosen you even if somebody on this earth has chosen to unchoose you. Did I say that right? And God loves you even though somebody has chosen not to love you. And God accepts you with all the feelings you have right now, though they may be pretty raw. And some days you may hurt and there may be pain that's overwhelming in your life. That God loves you exactly as you are and he has a plan for your future. You see, there's times in your life, my life, when it feels like it's all falling apart. But it's only by God and his sustaining grace that holds us all together. If you haven't gone there in a while, I want you to bask in the love of God, to drink in the sweet love of God till your heart becomes full, to sit down at the table of God and feast upon him, to look at his face and how much joy you bring into his life. The gospel is that he died for sinners according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. Two men were walking down what's known as the road to Emmaus, and they were talking to each other about recent events like people do, about this prophet, mighty in word and deed. He was crucified, but some women went to the tomb and found it empty and had a vision of angels. The disciples wanted to know more, and so Jesus said, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for Jesus Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory. See, the scripture says that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. Of what scriptures is the writer speaking of? He's talking about Jesus is in the Old Testament scriptures. You see, the first guy we have in the Bible, his name is Adam. Adam was given a garden. Some of you like to garden. Adam had a garden. He was in a garden, but he didn't do well in his garden. He had a test in the garden. And he failed his test, just like we flunk tests. But he was tempted and he fell. So a second Adam came along. His name is Jesus. 
Jesus was also in a garden, but Jesus didn't flunk his test. He passed his test. So Jesus is, Jesus is the true and better Adam. Then there was a man named Abraham. That was a weak response, by the way. Jesus is the new and better Adam. Thank you. But then came along Abraham. Now, Abraham was called by God to leave his land, to leave his family, leave everything familiar to him, to go to a land that God would show him. So Abraham left his land and went to the promised land, and God made out of him a great nation. But there came a second, truer, better Abraham who heard the call of God to leave his family and create the new people of God. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the new and better Abraham. Yes, thank you. And then there was Isaac. Isaac was offered up by his father on the mountain. Sacrifice, to be sacrificed. And God said to Abraham, now you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love. Now we can say that Jesus is the newer and better Isaac. We can say to God, you loved us enough not to spare your son. You provided the sacrifice on that mount called Calvary. Now I know that you love me because of the cross. See, Jesus is the new and better Isaac. And then there was Moses, right? Moses was out in the desert, and the people were complaining. They were thirsty. And God said to Moses, speak to the rock. But Moses got angry, and he struck the rock. The rock was Jesus. Jesus is the new and better Moses. He gives water to his people in the desert. So if you are in a desert, in a dry and desolate place, if you're wandering about in the desert, you can speak to the rock. His name is Jesus. And out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And Jesus is the new and better Jonah. Now, Jonah was a prophet, and Jonah was called by God to go to the town of Nineveh. But Jonah disobeyed God, and he got on board a ship, and there was a furious storm on the ship. So they threw Jonah overboard. So for three days, three nights, Jonah was in the belly of a big fish. Jesus also was in a furious storm. It didn't look like Jesus was going to make it. Jonah went to the depths of the earth. Jesus went to the depths of the grave. But on the third day, Jesus Christ rose up from the dead. He is the new and better Jonah. You see, no sign is going to be given to this generation than the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the grave three, day, three days, three nights. So shall the Son of Man be. What he's saying is that Jesus Christ the sign of the resurrection will speak to him being a better Jonah. So look at this scripture now, 1 Corinthians 15. It says that Jesus appeared to Peter. You see it, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, that Jesus appeared to Peter. Why would Jesus appear to Peter? Because Peter was fallen. Peter was so discouraged Peter had made a promise and not kept it. 
And Jesus, out of his love and compassion, went to Peter to restore him. And then it says that Jesus appeared to the twelve. The twelve were in a room. The door was locked for fear of the Jews. They feared that what would happen, happen to Jesus would happen to them. So they locked the door, and Jesus comes in in his resurrection and says, Peace be unto you. And then it says in verse 6 that Jesus appeared to over 500 of the brothers. Imagine you're a trial attorney, and you've got 500 witnesses, and they basically are all reliable, trustworthy people. And one after another, they say, he is risen, he is risen. I think you'd have a pretty strong case. And then it says, noteworthy to us this morning, that Jesus appeared to James. Do you see it there in verse 7? He appeared to James. Now, we have no evidence that James believed while Jesus was alive. James was a skeptic. I'm not so sure. What did it take for James to move from being a skeptic to a believer? It took a resurrection. James, I can hear Jesus saying, my dear brother, I am not dead. I am alive. Jesus, you're alive? Yes, I'm alive. I'm God's son. It's all true. I want you to believe. James, I have plans for your life. I want you to follow me. I believe you'll become a great leader. I believe people will listen to you. You know what happened to James? James went from being a skeptic to becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. He was known as James the Just. He prayed so fervently and frequently, he was known as James the man with camel knees. And he would eventually surrender his life for following Jesus Christ. James became a follower, not a skeptic. He gave his life to Jesus. You know what I believe? I believe that Jesus didn't make it hard for James to follow him. He found James where he was, and he presented himself to him. And this morning, if you're searching for God, he will find you, and he will reveal himself to you. Some of you have been a Christ follower for a long time, but here's the problem. You need to be reawakened. You need to be re-energized by the Spirit. You need to move from drudgery to delight to get your passion back. You know what you need? You need the gospel. I need the gospel. There will never be a moment in my life when I won't need the gospel. The gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A through Z of Christianity. The gospel is not the shallow end of the pool. The gospel is the deep end of the pool. You need to go deeper and deeper into the love of God, to fix your inward gaze on Jesus, to turn your eyes upon Jesus, to let this proclamation wash over you, to hear His voice speak to you, you are loved, and you are chosen, and you are blessed, and you are accepted. James became a leader of the church, 
and there was a controversy in the church. And so James would speak up. This is Acts 15. And he says these words, It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. There was a mighty movement of God's Spirit. God was continuing to add and multiply the church. The question was whether we would heap upon people the law, all the stipulations of the law, or whether the Gentiles' faith would be enough. Should we put people back under the law, make them obey the law, or simply to follow Christ? What James said was, let's not make it difficult for those who are coming to Christ. Let's let those who've started the journey just simply follow Him. In a moment, we're going to sing a song. It's entitled, All the Poor and Powerless. Because how James saw himself now was not as the half-brother of Jesus. He saw himself as a servant. That all the poor and powerless, all the lost and lonely ones, all the thieves will come confess and know, God, that you are holy. We make distinctions in our world based upon whether somebody is rich or poor. Rich men get a chance to decide which car they're going to drive, right? A poor man says, I'm going to drive my beat-up Civic, or I'm going to take the bus, or I'm going to ride my bike to work, or I'm going to walk. We make distinctions based on someone's being rich and poor, a rich man may say, would you rather have steak or salmon cooked on the grill? <laughs> a poor man would say, I'll just eat my ramen noodles or what's left over in the restaurant or just be hungry tonight. A rich man may look in his closet and say, I don't know what I'm going to wear. I've got so many choices to make. But a poor man doesn't have a closet and doesn't have a wardrobe and doesn't have a place. One of the most amazing things we saw was in these blessing bags that went out. When people would receive them, it'd say, socks. Can you imagine being so poor that when you open a blessing bag, there was a pair of white socks and you got excited about it? So the gospel is not a gospel of exclusion keeping the poor man out or exalting the rich man. The church is not a country club. The gospel is inclusive, and this is what the gospel says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the humble man. Blessed is the humble woman who humbles themselves for God and opens their empty hands to receive the gift that God wants to bestow upon you. You see, the poor have a need, and their need is for God. They realize they can't make it on their own. God, who was very, very rich, became very, very poor, that we, through His poverty, might become incredibly rich. The treasure that we seek is the person of Jesus, and Jesus is made manifest in the gospel. You've heard this week about the bombings over in Brussels, Belgium, that there was a horrible, horrible thing that happened over there, that people standing in the security line were, um, were injured and many were killed. 
I was watching the news this week about a man whose name is Alphonse Eula. He was actually working in the security area when he heard the first explosion. And after the bombs went off, he actually drugged seven people to safety. There was a six-foot-ten guy uh, who Alphonse found first who had suffered a major blow to his hip, and he tied a tourniquet onto this man, saving his life. Another one was there who was a missionary who was right in the middle of the blast who saw the fire, who um, he um, drug to safety, and the man said that he prayed, and God heard his prayers, and he felt the peace of God there. Well, Alphonse, according to his testimony, heard a man say something in Arabic, then he heard a loud explosion, and his first thought was, I need to help these people. And his uniform, as he performed this heroic act, became splattered in blood, dragging this six-foot-ten basketball player, dragging these wounded people, all of them to safety. I don't really know about Alphonse, whether he's a believer in Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ came into humanity, and he saw our ruined condition, our helpless place, and he began to drag us one by one as his clothes were splattered with his blood, showing us the enormity of his love. I want to tell you that in the middle of all that hate, And all that noise and all that violence, there was a man full of God's love. And when we live by our faith, our faith will be accompanied by actions. And James wanted you just to know this, that I am a servant of God and of Christ Jesus, that I am simply His servant. He went from being a skeptic to becoming a believer to becoming a leader to then he was known as a servant. Pray with me. Father, here on this Easter Sunday morning, we have heard the gospel. The gospel is, has always been, and forever will be good news. Some of us have grown weary in the battle. There's been a distance between us and you, Lord. Our Christianity has lapsed into more of a drudgery or duty than a delight. I pray for refreshing to our souls. I pray for the gospel and for Jesus to awaken us, to encourage us, to warm our hardened hearts, to comfort our weary souls, to see the proclamation being made over us that we are loved and we are chosen, that we are blessed, that we are alive, we're accepted. But there are those in this room who are fighting a huge battle right now of surrendering our lives to the person of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you, Holy Spirit, would you do your work of drawing and illuminating our minds, and answering our questions, and dealing with our doubts, and our skepticism. We just keep looking for more and more evidence, more and more proof, 
scrutinizing the truth, what we really need to do is to humble ourselves and simply to believe and to receive from you this precious gift. So, Father, in your presence, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we simply humble ourselves before you, God, and ask your Holy Spirit to illumine our minds, to give to us faith, to believe that Jesus is your Son, that he came into this world born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, and he is our Savior. He died for our sins. According to the Scriptures, he was buried, and then he rose again according to the Scriptures. God, would you give us the courage and the humility to simply believe the simple gospel that our lives would be transformed. I pray for every skeptic that's here, that God, over time, you might increasingly show yourself in their life, giving them evidence that you are God. And even now, as we're about to sing and to shout, that God, our hearts would fill with joy as we consider Jesus Christ risen from the dead. We pray in his name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our last song?